AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is AlienLegacy.html. Yay! What began as a project investigating my favorite movie franchise of all time, the Alien films, has turned into a series of bizarre derailments, all in the name of good fun, I guess. But really, it's been fascinating taking a look at this franchise. I found the BTS that we explored on Alien gave new meaning to the film for me. And I thought the exploration of how hard James Cameron had to work to create aliens was fascinating. Alien cubed was challenging but like we said each one of those films defined sci-fi horror for their decade so then when alien resurrection was pumped out a little too early it of course was riddled with the sort of repetition that doesn't lend itself to legacy and trope but rather feeling overused and rehashed from there though we were able to see a lot of the themes that are going to appear in ridley scott's later two alien films Prometheus and Covenant. And we can even sort of hazard that they're kind of their own trilogy. But we're going to take a break from all that and further explore the threads of Predator. Now, we did not love Predator in our Predator watch. No, not especially. Then we really didn't love Predator 2, Pigs in the Big City. But we do love Danny Glover. And we really love Bill Paxton. We really do. There was just a lot of problematically toxic masculine jokes throughout the film. Both films, really. So, it's with all of that in mind that that we're taking a look at AVP a little wary. Yes, it's definitely with good reason. And what's fascinating is this isn't a franchise that you can even say was born of the mighty Hollywood machine. No, this was born out of a third tier comic book company desperate to survive. Yeah, and even if you wanted to say that the original comic story was some sort of cash grab, well, that didn't force anyone into making this film. It's just something that really picked up steam through the fandom more than anything else. Chris Warner, who was one of the artists and editors on the early work for AVP comics, is mostly credited with the concept of combining the two worlds. It all kind of came from the fact that Dark Horse Comics had the rights to both. They had run a story about aliens and dark horse presents number 34 predator and number 35 and decided to combine them in number 36 and i mean something like that does just sort of feel inevitable especially when you find out that they both belong under the same house you know flintstones and jetsons it just makes sense whether or not you are a big fan of this sort of serial monster wacky races that avp represents the names of the creators associated with at least the comic book side of this is crazy whether it's x-men superscribe chris claremont or barbara kiesel alex maleve ian edgington or any other of a number of names these comics had some real creator credibility and most of these stories were published well before the film came out with the height of the line being in the mid to late 90s. 
Something I think that's really fun as well is that in a lot of ways, the overarching plot of the Alien vs. Predator film that we got really followed along with the important story beats of the first Alien vs. Predator comic book story. And I like that a lot. Especially because the threads that it follows up on feel like some of the only threads true to Alien in this franchise. So the story of the original Alien vs. Predator comic from 1989 takes place on Ryushi, a recently colonized planet, and centers around Machigo Naguchi, the Chigusa Corporation's administrator of the colony. Unbeknownst to the colonists, Ryushi is the traditional hunting ground of the predators who deliver alien eggs to gestate in the native cattle-like creatures. Unbeknownst to the predators, their captive alien queen has slipped an egg containing the seed of another queen into their shipment. The predators are surprised to find the human settlers, and after their leader, Broken Tusk is incapacitated, change their plans to hunt the humans instead. When the queen egg matures, an alien colony quickly establishes itself. While the predators focus their assault on the settlers, Broken Tusk sides with Machigo and the humans when their intervention saves his life. Mortally wounded in battle against the aliens, Broken Tusk marks Machigo with the symbol of his clan, recognizing and admiring her courage. While the human survivors are evacuated from the planet, Machigo waits for the predators to return and, recognizing Broken Tusk's symbol, they accept her into the hunt. So I feel like what you're saying is this is basically the same story as the film, minus the appropriation? And minus Earth. Yeah, I was gonna say minus, and then I realized I wanted to say plus space. outer space, <laughs> but yeah. You mean plus big space! Plus big alien space, yeah. And in so many ways, no, like, for real, for real, that is the plot of this film. It's really funny because I don't want to be deeply insulting of Alien vs. Predator, but it's it's kind of like the parts of Apocalypse I didn't like as well. Like, they added the stuff I didn't like from Apocalypse 10 years before I didn't like it in Apocalypse. And you'd think people would have learned. Honestly, just the road of getting AVP out the door was so rough because so many people didn't take the concept seriously in the first place. So I imagine that was even part of it. It couldn't have helped that series star Sigourney Weaver disavowed herself of the project in its earliest stages nearly a decade early. Yeah, she definitely said things like, this is why I wanted them to kill off my character in the first place. When asked if he ever saw the film, Ridley Scott laughed and said, no, I couldn't do that. I couldn't quite take that. That step. Before AVP was greenlit, James Cameron had actually been working on a story for a fifth alien, potentially using Ridley Scott's story concept to go back to where the alien creatures were first found and explain how they were created. Hmm. But then learning that Fox was planning on pursuing AVP, Cameron ceased work on his story, believing the film would, quote, kill the validity of the franchise and saying, to me, it was Frankenstein meets werewolf. This comment was lampooned in the film with a screen showing footage from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman early on. After viewing the film, however, James Cameron ultimately remarked, It was actually pretty good. I think of the five alien films, I'd rate it third. I actually liked it. I actually liked it a lot. Which, that's interesting. That means he's probably putting it third after his own and the original. Honestly, me too though. Me, me too. Up through now, this is easily my third favorite of the seven movies we've watched. Yeah, I really liked this way, way, way back when, you know, this is another one of my, this was on HBO all 
the time movies, so I just caught it over and over again. I was never really a horror person, I'm still not especially one, but when a movie is on over and over again on a cable channel in the early 2000s and there's nothing else on TV, sure, you end up watching it a few times, and I thought it was fun, I liked the characters, I liked the story, and the story I liked is the basic plot structure that it followed from the comic. The only thing I will say is I feel like Alien gets heavily shortchanged as a franchise. Now, there's things about it where I'm like, mm, I don't know if this can exist in a post-Prometheus world, but I'm willing to let them both coexist. Whatever. We all know that the Xenomorph can spawn uniquely in different creatures, so maybe this is just a real lame-ass strain of Xenomorph. Or like one that is specifically bioengineered for this purpose. It's something that does beg questions, but they're not overwhelming questions. They're ones that you can easily work out for yourself in a lot of ways. Well, there was one stop on the road to making an AVP movie before it fell into the hands of Mr. Mila Jovovich. Screenwriter Peter Briggs, best known for 2004's Hellboy, wrote a spec screenplay in 1990 to 1991 based on the comic and successfully pitched the concept box, but the studio was focused on resurrection and did not move forward until 2002. By then, producer John Davis wanted to give the film an original approach by setting it on Earth, which explains where the colony stuff went. A draft by James DeMonaco and Kevin Fox involving human researchers discovering a crashed predator ship and using its cargo of alien eggs to breed xenomorphs in hopes of luring more predators to Earth to steal their technology was also rejected by Davis. Thank God! Yeah, right? Paul W.S. Anderson pitched Davis a story he had been working on for eight years. He had been influenced by the writings of Eric von Daniken, the Swiss author of several books about extraterrestrial influence on early human culture. Did you just say Hunter S. Thompson was really influenced by Kurt Vonnegut when making this movie? We're gonna go with Eric von Daniken on this one. So, von Daniken was one of the main figures responsible for popularizing the paleo-contact and ancient astronaut hypotheses, and Anderson wove into the story this guy's theories about early civilizations being aided by aliens in building the pyramids. Producer John Davis was impressed, and Anderson began work on the film after completing the script for Resident Evil Apocalypse. Ooh, another apocalypse tie-in. I actually, I'm going to be honest, I love the Resident Evil movies. I really fucking love them. I think they're great. I think that each one is a different experience to be had. is sure a thing, but I think they're great movies. They're a lot of fun. Again, not a super horror guy, but I think you've shown me a few of them, and I had a decently good time. Three of them, apparently. It's quite a while ago. We'll probably catch up on them eventually. Paul W.S. Anderson's first major motion picture was Shopping in 1994, which he wrote and directed, starring Jude Law in his first feature film role. He next directed 1995's Mortal Kombat, having played the game a lot in arcades. Anderson admits he knew nothing about visual effects or fight scenes and had to learn on set from books and more experienced members of the cast and crew. He then went on to direct Event Horizon in 1997 and Soldier in 1998 before landing the 2002 film adaptation of Resident Evil where he met his wife Mila Jovovich and now here we are with him on AVP. The many layers of that onion are just incredible if for no other reason after he directed Mortal Kombat they saw fit to give him another video game movie. I just know. And yet it paid off so like that just goes to show maybe the problems with Mortal Kombat weren't with him. And I think part of what really fascinates me is we're talking about a film that struggled to get acceptance from the start and it was so branded this 
foolish notion, but here we are in 2019, and we just saw how many crossover franchises come and go so quickly because it became all the rage to create a crossover franchise. And I just find myself wondering if Alien vs. Predator would play very differently now. And, you know, I really would love Alien vs. Predator vs. Freddy vs. Jason vs. Michael vs. Dracula vs. the Wolfman versus the mummy versus Ann Coulter. I would I would just put all of those monsters in one room. And the thing is, it really sounds like Anderson was trying here from everything that I read. He was very conscious of contradicting continuity of the franchises, which is why he chose to set the film on the remote island in the Norwegian Antarctic, both for the hostile environment, which is probably the closest to an alien surface you can get, as he described it, and to keep the story from intersecting with the modern world. He wanted the regular shifting of the pyramid's rooms to evoke a sense of claustrophobia similar to the original Alien film. 70% of the scenes were created using suits and puppets and miniatures rather than relying too heavily on CGI and he like heavily praised the Alien director Ridley Scott and Predator director John McTiernan for their abilities. Like he really went into this lovingly. That's even why he the very first actor who was cast for this film was Lance Henriksen. Okay I'm really glad you brought that up. Is there anything on how they got him? They were just like your character is one of the most confusing parts of this franchise. Let's see if we can't make it more confusing. Well, here's how he described it. When the Bishop Android is created in 150 years time, it's created with the face of the creator. It's kind of like Microsoft building an Android in 100 years time that has the face of Bill Gates, which I don't know. I don't think they wouldn't do, especially because they'll probably have the rights. I just imagine they'll cast Scarlett Johansson. But it was an attempt to keep continuity with the series by including a familiar actor and you know i kind of get it i don't think that it breaks the franchise or continuity or believability any more than him appearing at the end of alien 3 in fact i think alien 3 is probably weirder and more confusing for me you know and like in my head i'm like i really do feel good about resurrection prometheus and covenant being its own trilogy so now in my head i'm like trying to splice up the predator movies into a trilogy and i'm like okay it's predator avp avp2 and then the next one will be pigs in the big city the predatatators and then the predatatatoms because all of their names are basically the same thing it's just like one big pretty cougar melon camp and it's so hard to keep it straight i'm glad that you swung us back around to predator as well by the way because speaking of wanting to keep continuity with the series anderson reported in an interview that california governor arnold schwarzenegger was willing to reprise his role as dutch for a short cameo if he lost the 2003 recall election on the condition that filming would take place at his residence. However, he won with 48.58% of the vote and was not able to participate. Oh, that's where my Sigourney Weaver quote was. The reason I wanted my character to die in the first place and saying the concept sounded awful. Those are the quotes from Sigourney Weaver, so that's why her character wasn't brought back for continuity. But Arnold! But you know what? Where would she go? Is the is the Ellen Ripley trucker based on the original Ellen Ripley that trucked in the 19 fucking 80s well here's the thing if they could get sigourney weaver they would have revamped the entire story of the film around her and you know that but you're correct she had no place in this story and bringing her back for this story was not necessary in fact i do genuinely love that we got another film with a very positive feminist perspective there is no point at which i feel the women in this film are treated like second class by gender it's just an alien predator movie so humans are treated as second 
second class by life cycle. Everyone is pretty much dispendable in a movie. You're lucky when you survive. Speaking of survivors, here's something interesting that I found in my research. So the only reason that Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett are given story credit on the film is based on elements from their work on the original Alien, not an actual contribution to the story of this specific film. Meanwhile, writer Shane Salerno, who will go on to write AVP Requiem, basically co-wrote this script with Paul W.S. Anderson, even staying on for revisions throughout the film's production. But it's only in reading about behind the scenes stuff that I discovered this information he doesn't have a credit on either the script or the story so despite being so heavily involved in writing this script his work was not deemed significant enough to get credit but Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett were so it's sort of like he got Norton hulked but they got Stan Lee credited yeah sure if you like that's really interesting the way all of this right stuff falls out and the way these decisions are made and the arbitration of who gets what what credit, you know. There are so many, so many, so many hands that touch these stories behind the scenes that aren't necessarily in the credits. I guess the last bit of BTS is what is always my favorite, which is the composer. For this film, it is Harold Klosser. Both of Klosser's first major works were released in 2004 with this film and The Day After Tomorrow, and he won the BMI Music Award for both scores. I had a visceral reaction because I'd been going to compare so many of the shots in this film to The Day After Tomorrow visually in terms of hyper-relying on massive snow and heavy embankment to create a sense of isolation and fear. I get that, and this guy does a lot of really epic scores. His next two major films were 10,000 BC in 2008 and 2012 in 2009. That's a lot of numbers. I know, you just made a face. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, then he's another guy who has a consistent partner in Roland Emmerich. And another fun fact is that they were both co-written by Harold Klosser. You don't really see composers like writing films a lot and those were like big deals too. And usually when you do it's the film writer is also a composer like a John Carpenter. Yeah right? His last two major works were White House Down in 2013 and Independent State Resurgence in 2016. The score on the last four works mentioned were collaborations with composer Thomas Wander who also worked with him on several other projects and it was under the name Thomas Wanker that I am more familiar with his work as the composer for Buffy the Vampire Slayer from 2000 to 2002. I was not a fan of his work on that program. That is very interesting. Also, can I be real with you? Now I am desperate for Snuffy's Civil War drama. Hmm... Rather than respond to any one part of the film specifically, I want to start by responding to the film as a whole. The magic of an alien movie is a somewhat unlikable cast forced to put aside their differences to try to survive a horrifying situation. Although, I will say, in Aliens, the colonial marines all love each other very genuinely and very clearly from the beginning. So it's not so much that the colonial marines need to be taught how to love each other, it's more they have to come to accept Ripley. There's a different kind of brotherhood when it comes to the colonial marines that just comes from the military aspect of the film overall it's a different kind of brotherhood and camaraderie than you get from space truckers in the first alien movie absolutely and they do such a masterful job giving me an idea of the playing field that all of this is on and yeah there's some stuff that i don't like it's all very heavy-handed like oh you need me and only me and no one else can solve your problem i am coming then do you know what they call that moon of 
up there. It is a hunter's moon. LOL, LOL. So there is some real stupid stuff like that, but on the whole, this really is an exciting, engaging action film. There's a strong female presence. The male presence is not exclusively toxic. There's connections to the idea of Waylon Yutani as well as the xenomorphs. And I genuinely like what it adds and expresses about the predators, but it is more of a predator movie than an alien movie. It is. It really is. Something that we said continuously throughout watching this is that this really feels more like Predator featuring special guest Alien than it does feel like an Alien versus Predator film, if that makes sense. It really does to me. I mean, obviously I'm saying it, so LOL. But I feel like what we're looking at is a really good attempt at trying to express why Predator is a valid contender. Alien, by this point, had had four films. Alien had had a legion of video games. It was a more culturally recognized term. It had a star more synonymous with it. Because even though I would never question that Arnold is a more famous person than Sigourney Weaver any day of the of the universe, but the difference there is Arnold is best known for probably Terminator or being alive than he is for this role. And Sigourney Weaver, when you think of Alien, you say Alien. Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver, star of the Alien franchise. So Alien had so much going for it that Predator needed a shot in the arm. If you're a hipster, you'll want to say Sigourney Weaver from Ghostbusters, but that's about it. You might know her from her other popular sci-fi film where, uh, so she's a con artist and she stars opposite, uh, a young woman who's uh, an alien and they rip people's hearts out. Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Heartbreakers. Yeah, you try and talk Joey into getting a Jennifer Love Hewitt podcast. Go ahead and try it. I call the party of five years. And you know, the thing about the character of Lex from Alien vs. Predator and not Heartbreakers is that she really is like a cross between a Ripley and a Dutch. She's a strong female character whose training makes her competent at handling a situation like this, even though that's not what the training was for. And a ridiculously powerful badass who does things like climb frozen waterfalls and saves some Someone from falling down a mine shaft using only a pickaxe. Like, that opening sequence where she's climbing a frozen waterfall was so over the top, but I also kind of loved it. But I also kind of have to question how is that guy just waiting for her at the top of the mountain? Wouldn't she have heard the helicopter coming and landing? And also, how did she have cell service out there? That one's actually not as big a deal, though, because, like, that's something you're supposed to do when you adventure. So, anybody who's ever been in a creative writing class or is a writing major of any kind has absolutely been in a class where somebody's like and the entire time she's the killer and she doesn't know it you know what i mean oh yeah the entire time he was the president's missing daughter like it's always stuff like that and i do kind of feel like and he's waiting on the top of the mountain surprise that baby had the cure to cancer baby hitler had the cure to cancer and you killed him that's right, this movie is so badass that we're not even giving you a minute to breathe until we give you, like, 20 minutes to breathe for a while there. You have to wonder if somebody worked at a deal where it was like, this is a good time to go get popcorn, bitches. Go go get your popcorn. Yeah, kind of, a little bit. I want to draw attention to a fun little Easter egg in the film. A nice shout-out to the X-Files franchise. The icebreaker ship is named the Piper Maru, which is a reference to, I want to say, 
season seven. Oh, why didn't I write it down? I love X-Files. I could talk about X-Files all day. I did a complete X-Files universe watch at one point. That was a lot of fun. And it's great to see something that influenced the X-Files, Alien and Predator, both be re-influenced by X-Files in the form of AVP. And this movie has Lance Henriksen, like from Millennium. You know, and Millennium is such a weird show to talk about because I, I think I like it. I think I liked Millennium. I thought the central bad guy was interesting. I think Lance Henriksen can act the hell out of anything. So I want to like... Well, but we like this film, and that's what we're here to talk about right now. I think it does do a lot of cool things. I love the abandoned whaling station. Apparently, there is a deleted scene where we would have seen a bit of the previous hunt in 1904 as part of the opening. I don't know. It might have been cool. It might have sucked. You never know with these things. But I love the drill hole and the mystery of that. Like, obviously, we know exactly what it is, but I think it's just fun. It reminds me a lot of the first Alien film when they're investigating LV-426 and you know you kind of are aware as the audience of where the film is going to go but they don't and I think that the characters play it off very well. Like we said, this film is very much like a Predator movie, but I feel like it's with an alien ensemble cast, you know? If this movie was directed and edited differently, I would have really believed that it could have been released as a Predator film, and then an hour and 20 minutes, the Xenomorphs show up. That they were the thing that was rattling around like a fucking Cerebrus in a basement, you know what I mean? I really think the least important part of this movie is the Predator versus the Xenomorph. I actually think in a lot of ways a different monster might have sufficed better than the xenomorph but what we get is actually a really interesting movie about shared culture and learning to bond like i just really find myself compelled by the lead i it's just unfortunate you know when somebody asks me to describe a really cool rube goldberg machine i find myself stuck for words because you know it's just the thing hits the next thing hits the next thing hits the next thing hits the next thing it's a rube goldberg machine and that's kind of what these alien pick em off movies have become i just talk about kill to the next kill to the next kill and it's not that that's numbed me to it but for this one the only things that matter are Lance Henriksen's Bishop Proto character dies a semi-honorable death and Lex makes it to the end other than that there's just not a lot of movie to discuss and I really like your comparison to a Rube Goldberg machine I think the film did a good job of giving us a setting that works for that sort of concept though the Aztec Pyramid, to me, evokes images of the World's Fair Hotel, informally known as the Murder Castle from the 1940s, where H.H. H. Holmes would trap visitors in the walls of the hotel, and they would be subjected to a series of different like traps and rooms and twists and turns. And that's sort of what we got here. It was, instead of just being a very complicated set like a spaceship or a full colony, or a weird outer space oil rig. Here we have a set that's like that that's also reconfiguring itself at the same time. So it puts a fresh spin on what had been becoming incredibly dull. So they sort of hogwarts it. Oh, because of the stairs? Sure. You just got to find the magic where you can. The next thing you know is Xenomorph is going to be running around going, So it's going to be, I would fucking love a Xenomorph at Hogwarts. It's like a whole new take on a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. AVHP. Oh!
Oh, it just came to me. Voldemort versus a Xenomorph versus Predator versus Snidely Whiplash. I mean, it's no worse than what this film actually was. It's no different than the Predator versus Archie comic that I've seen on the shelf every time we've gone to the comic shop the last few months. And I honestly don't think there's anything wrong with it. I love this idea of a network of interconnected universes, and maybe they're only connected via a wormhole. For instance, the Star Trek and X-Men universes cross over through a dimensional rift, and I love that. I think it's fun to explore the way these ideas bounce off of each other in a harmonious reverberation. That said, this was a harmonious reverberation, and the next one is an exploration in what happens if, you know, I, like we said that we said that Alien Resurrection had a little too much 90s gross-out humor to it. AVPR is just a, it's like a low-budget horror movie. mid 2000 snarky horror gore without substance. Yeah, woof. As a final note, though, on AVP, the date that Lex gives when asked what the date is, the 10th of October 2004, is exactly 10 years before Kid Riot debuted. So that's a fun little tie-in to our projects, and we're actually going to be celebrating New York Comic Con all this month, having just done another amazing year there. So don't forget to check us out there. And Kevo, where can everybody check you out other than that? Well, like Nico said, you can see all of these super cool, super fun, super exciting superhero stories that we have been doing for five years now, because we're coming up on October 10th here in the real world as well. And you can check those out over at KidRideComics.com. You can also find me on the social medias at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can find me posting on the Facebook page for this lovely program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo action which is also where you can find us on instagram and tumblr but not twitter which is where you will find us at real nico kevo ack ack nico where can the folks find you i have to be real i really never get tired of that ack business you guys can find me all over this network on shows like now and again which i do with my childhood best friend chris podcasts where we talk about pop music and it's changing face using the now that's what i call music series as a lens don't forget to check out x's for podcast kevo and my's amazing show with our boyfriend jonah and our best friends Dylan and Kyle, where we examine the X-Men comic book franchise across many decades and throw in some other really phenomenal runs that we think everybody should be checking out. You can also look at me pretty much naked all the time on my Instagram over at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, and until we return to take a look at something that should have never happened to one of my favorite franchises, we warned you. We really did. (laughs) 